It's meant to be opened, explored, pursued. It's made to be read, reread, applied, and used. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, with wisdom life-changing to lead us on. It's made for guidance to teach us His ways, showing what's true, right, and worthy of praise. It's meant to be hidden deep in our hearts, daily examined as the morning starts. No greater glimpse of God do we have, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We are starting a new series for the month of March, and there are four Sundays, so this series will uh, be accomplished in four Sundays. That's the way I roll. And so, uh, the, we're going to be looking at four tools, four emphases, four orientations that help us to fight the good fight of faith. And if you're wondering why four and why these four, then you need to come to Footnotes, which happens at 9 a.m. in room one if you want to join us. We had a great crowd uh, there this morning, and there's room for more. And we're going over why these four and some of the backstory um, as we uh, go through this. So if you're feeling left out, come join us in room one, 9 a.m., and uh, we meet for about 45 minutes. Today, we're going to be looking at... The Bible. We're going to be looking at the scriptures. And it's interesting because we always preach from the scriptures, but rarely do we take a chance, an opportunity to think about the scriptures. And so we're going to be doing that for a short uh, time today as we go through these four emphases, these four orientations that will help us to fight the good fight. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. Anybody know it? I've just been saying it, actually. Fight the good fight of faith. All of our youth know it, thanks to Eric McComish and the t-shirts he designed. I figured that Eric um, knew that the youth probably couldn't get tattoos of their own, and so he designed one that they could wear on their back. And so uh, this is a great tattoo. Honestly, he's not inciting your youth to violence. Um, it has some boxing gloves there, uh, but it's fight the good fight of faith. And that's what we're looking at. What does this mean when we talk about fighting the good fight of faith? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, um, Paul is encouraging Timothy to keep his integrity in spite of all that's going on around him. That's part of it. There's so much that vies for our attention, so much that complicates our lives, so, much, uh, so many voices that call out for our attention. And uh, Paul says to Timothy, keep fighting the good fight of faith. It's not just keep on believing. It's not just about personal faith, although it is that, but it's also about contending for the faith that has been once delivered to the saints. This body of knowledge, this body of understanding, this body of belief that has been entrusted from the apostles down to the church and through the church leaders and through the church community to us today, that we are still to contend for this faith. And so the faith has to do, fighting for the faith has to do with this personal integrity that we have, but also for contending for the things that are true. And we hold on to that as well. 
And so that's what we're going to be looking at a little bit today in, in contending for the faith and what's going to help us. The first thing we look at is the scripture. It should be an important tool in contending for the faith. Well, you may know that Timothy is Paul's son in the faith. Paul, of course, as far as we know, was not married, didn't have any natural children. That might have been a very good thing. I think he would have been an awful father. But that's just my opinion of Paul. Um, but Paul decided that it was better for him to stay single so he could pursue what God had called him to do. But he had many children in the faith, and Timothy was one of them. He called Timothy his true son in the faith. And so Paul often wrote to Timothy to encourage him. And Timothy needed a lot of encouragement because not only was Timothy uh, Paul's son in the faith, but Timothy was set up by Paul to preach and to pass on the faith to others. But Timothy had a number of obstacles. Number one, Timothy was young. And that was an obstacle because you had to be of a certain age to really to be eligible to be something like a rabbi or, or be considered a teacher. But Timothy was young. Not like Eric. Eric isn't actually young anymore, but I know Doug's sitting right there, and it's so easy, but Eric's closer. Um, but Timothy was very young, and so Paul had to say to Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, right? But that was an obstacle for him for being taken seriously in the church, perhaps. The other obstacle is that Timothy seemed to have an illness. He seemed to have some kind of ailment. Paul said to him at one point, Timothy... Stop drinking just water and take a little wine for the sake of your stomach. And Timothy is like, yes, or something like that, right? And he's like, finally, an excuse. Uh, no, but Timothy seemed to have some kind of ailment or some kind of illness. And it was substantial enough that Paul gave him some instruction as to how to deal with it. And we know from Paul that Paul himself had some kind of illness or ailment that plagued him. Paul, it might have been also that he was short of stature, and it sounded like maybe he stumbled in his speech. And so people sometimes didn't take him seriously. Sometimes they even made fun of him, made fun of his speech or made fun of his stature. And, uh, and so Paul knew what it was to wrestle with that. So he encouraged Timothy, even though Timothy was sometimes sick. The third thing that we might not recognize that was an obstacle for Timothy is that he was of a mixed race. Now, this might be news for some of us, but Timothy had a Greek father and had a Jewish mother and grandmother. And this would have been a problem for some people, especially if he was trying to uh, teach people in the church that came from a Hebrew background. Having this mix might not have sat well with them because they were looking for the, the pure bloods and not the muggles, right? Or something like that. So, so Timothy had a number of obstacles as he was contending for the faith, as he was trying to maintain his integrity in the world that was trying to squeeze him into its mold, and as he was contending for the faith that was once delivered to him, that he was a steward of and had to pass on to others, Timothy had some obstacles. So how did Timothy fight the good fight of faith even with these challenges? That's what we're asking today. Well, we're going to look and read um, a few verses from 2 Timothy chapter 3 in just a moment. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
Paul warns Timothy about the last days. Now, be careful here, because as soon as some of us hear last days, we go into like zombie apocalypse or something like that. Just, it's not the walking dead this morning. Just, just uh, ease back from that edge a little bit. <clears throat> the last days also meant something to Timothy. Paul was warning him then about the last days experience that he might have. This is what Paul said. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Is he describing today? I mean, some of us feel that some of those uh, habits and behaviors and attitudes are prevalent in our time too. That's what we're up against if we want to maintain our integrity in faith. And that's what Timothy was up against as well. So what is Paul's advice in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3? He says, first of all, avoid those people. Sometimes we need to unplug from some people on Facebook and Twitter, maybe because we're just so inundated by some of the negativity. I don't know if it's like that, but Paul says, avoid some people like that. But then Paul goes on in the passage to say, also remember my example. This is profound and important for all of us. It's good for us to have a mentor, a father in the faith, a mother in the faith, who we can look to and remember their example. But it's also important for us to be that person of faith for someone else so they can look to that. But the third thing that Paul says is this, and this is what we want to focus on, is he says, Timothy, you also need to remember the scriptures. That's what's going to help you to stay true to your faith in times that are very difficult. So let's read together 2 Timothy chapter 3. Oh, I thought I had a, I was in Romans apparently. Timothy's in here somewhere, I think. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read verses 14 to 17 to find out why Paul said, remember the scriptures. Verse 14. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they gave you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Paul says, remember the scriptures. As you're facing difficulty, as you're confused in the world around you, remember the scriptures. Remember that your, your mom and your grandma carefully taught you these scriptures and hold on to them as true in times that are difficult. Now, we have to acknowledge that when Paul referred to the scriptures in this passage, he wasn't talking about the Bible that we hold in our hands today. He's talking about the collection of Hebrew writings that sometimes we call the Old Testament. 
That was well established by the time of Jesus. It was established really at the uh, end of the exile when people came back into Jerusalem and were putting together the important documents and writings in order to really uh, solidify the Hebrew identity once again. And so this is the scriptures that come together that Paul is saying, you know them, you've been taught them, don't forget them because they will help you to withstand and to fight the good fight of faith. But we find something interesting in the New Testament because we understand that, that the New Testament writers called the Old Testament the scriptures. But then we find in the New Testament that there's reference to the writings of Paul as being part of the scriptures. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16, uh, Peter is talking about Paul's writings. Has anybody ever had difficulty with Paul's letters? Well, Peter did too. This should be an encouragement to us. Uh, Peter says, some of us uh, are reading the difficult letters of Paul. They're sometimes hard to understand, just like the other scriptures. And it's interesting that Peter equates Paul's writing on the same level as the other scriptures. And in fact, the early church, very early on, began to preserve and circulate basically the New Testament as we know it today. Even before Constantine, even before the council that ratified these 27 books that we have, even before then, the church was recognizing that certain documents, certain writings carried authority. And because they carried authority, they said we have to preserve these because they are an authoritative witness to the gospel of Jesus. And so that's what we have today. In footnotes, we briefly looked at, at sort of the canon of Scripture and how that all came together. So see what you're missing out if you come on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. But that's what we have today. And so we can trust this, this writing that comes to us um, that already has authority. And in them, we find the truth. In fact, in this church, in this congregation, we have a set of bylaws. And written right into our bylaws is a statement of faith. It's actually the same phrase that we find in the uh, Canadian Baptists of Western Canada identity statement. It says this, We believe in the divine inspiration of Holy Scripture and its entire trustworthiness and authority in all matters of faith and conduct. That's part of who we are. That's part of how we operate. That's part of our orientation. And Paul's encouragement to us when we face difficult times is to remember this and to remember the scriptures, and to orient our lives back toward the scriptures. Well, in the passage that we read together, Paul says two important things about the scriptures. Number one, he says this, they are inspired by God. That's the word he uses. And the word can be translated that all scripture is God-breathed. I love that idea. How do we understand this? And people have wrestled with, what does that actually mean? How does it actually work? How did the Bible, how was it formed with this understanding of the inspiration of God? How is it God-breathed? Well, I don't think we really mean that it was dictated word for word. It wasn't as if the, the authors, the writers were, were listening and they're, they're like, God, well, what was that word? The? Oh, the. And I'm going to put the in there. It, it's not like that. It's not a dictated thing. And we know that because we see different styles of writing. We also see different genres of writing. We see poetry and we see narrative. We see all different genres. We also have different languages of writing. And each and every one of the authors, they have their own personality coming through in the writing. 
Paul's letters are very different from Peter's letters. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all carry a different personality with them. So what do we mean when we see that these scriptures are God-breathed? Well, I think what we mean is this, that God, by His Spirit, was working through human agency in order to record His Word. God, by His Spirit, working through human agency in order to record His Word. And that's a very important distinction for us to make. There's a great Hebrew word, and it's ruach. And it's fun to say. You can practice it at home. Just be careful with the phlegm and all that. But ruach is a fantastic word. And it kind of sounds like breath, doesn't it? Sounds very breathy. And it's the Hebrew word that they use for wind. But it's also the word for breath and also the word for spirit. Right? And so when we talk about the scripture being God-breathed, we're really talking about it being infused by God's spirit. God's spirit is in the text. As we read the text of scripture, that's my encouragement. Listen for the spirit of God in the text, because this is God's breath. This is God-breathed words. This might come as a surprise to some of you, but once upon a time, I used to play a lot of different instruments. And there was a very logical reason for playing many different instruments. Not all at once. I wasn't like dun, 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 that kind of band, right? But I played lots of different instruments. Um, in elementary school, in high school, I played the bass clarinet. Anybody play the bass clarinet? Oh, wow. I feel special. So the reason I played the bass clarinet, though, is because my family at that time couldn't afford to get an instrument, and it was the last instrument in the band room that was available for free. And so I learned to play the bass clarinet. But what I really wanted to play was the tenor saxophone. And so when I got to high school, I joined the stage band, and they happened to have a tenor sax on hand. My dad eventually actually bought me a tenor saxophone. He was very disappointed when I traded it for a guitar. But anyhow, so then I played the tenor sax in jazz band. But then we were in a pretty small school in the Okanagan, and the teacher said this one day. He said, we are lacking in the brass instrument department. Anybody who takes up a brass instrument will have automatic A's for the rest of the year. And I was like, sign me up. So it's not that I was so talented that I played so many instruments. It had very practical reasons. So I learned, you know, uh, uh, trumpet fingering a little bit. I'm going to try Samuel's trumpet sometime. No, I won't. And uh, I learned how to play the, the valve trombone and the mellophone, which is kind of like a French horn, but with valves, and a few other instruments that I could swap between depending on the need. Here's my point. All those different instruments have a different sound. They have a different place in the band but they all needed my breath in them to make that sound. Now, I know the illustration breaks down on many levels, but just play with that for a minute. All of these different authors, all of these different books, through different times and different ages, through different styles and different genres, but they all have the breath of God in them. And that's what comes through. That's what we hold on to as we go through the Scripture. So that's the first thing that Paul says about the Scripture. Hold on to this word. It's, it's absolutely incredible that we have the breath of God through these words to us. And we get to pay attention to the Spirit in the text. But then the second thing he says is this, that they are useful. They are practical. They are useful for the life of faith. 
In the NIV, it says they're useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. They're useful to give us wisdom for life. They're useful to teach us right from wrong. There still is right and wrong, and the Bible's useful for that. But they're especially useful to equip us to do good work. They're especially useful to equip us to love our neighbors, right? And that's what the Bible is useful for. And so whenever we come up against a difficulty in our lives or in the world, it's very appropriate to pause and say, what does the Bible say about that? As we go through this uh, difficult conversations that we're having as a congregation, and as we met uh, uh, last Tuesday, Tuesday ago, I've lost track of time now, and I was so happy for the way that people uh, had conversations with one another with respect and integrity, and were able to exchange their opinions about the identity statement of the Canadian Baptist of Western Canada. And there's some sticky stuff in there when we get around to having those conversations. Uh, but it's important for us not only to offer our opinions and not only to offer how we feel, but we also have to ask the, the question, what does the Bible have to say about this? What is the Word of God saying? How does it instruct us in these matters? That's what Paul is saying. This is useful for you. Don't neglect it. It's useful for practical, everyday living as an individual and as a community. So that's why we orient our lives around the Bible when it comes to fighting the good fight of faith, because it is God's inspired word and because it's useful to us for knowing right from wrong. Well, here, though, is where I want to give a cautionary note when we come to accessing the Bible to fight the good fight of faith, this God-breathed word that guides our, our, our lives on the right path. This is where we have to be careful. If the ultimate authority in the universe is God, then how do we say that the Bible is also authoritative? Now, I don't expect you to launch at me with answers right away, but think about that. And this is where I think we have to be careful because, you see, the Bible did not create the heavens and the earth. We understand that? It seems obvious, but think about it. The Bible is not a member of the Trinity, the Bible doesn't actually save us, and the Bible is not God. And I think we have to be careful when it comes to that. And so the Bible is, I would say, an authoritative, inspired witness to Jesus. And that's the fundamental role of the Bible, of the Scriptures, is to point us to Christ. And even Jesus says this in John chapter 5. Listen to what he says. You search the scriptures because you think that they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. My point is this. When we read the Bible, we shouldn't elevate to the status, it to the status of a God. In fact, the Bible is meant to point us to Jesus. And so here's three things as we wrap up the message about the Bible today and some food for thought as you go home and hopefully talk about this in your families or with your friends. Um, but how do we then read the Bible in such a way that we can fight the good fight of faith and in such a way that it guides our life? Well, first of all, to emphasize my point, don't worship the text, worship the author. 
Don't worship the text, worship the author. There have been times within, especially our evangelical history, which we've elevated the Bible to such a status that we've almost been guilty of worshiping the scripture. And that's not the point. We don't worship the text, we worship the author. It would be the same as if you went today for a beautiful walk down by the river and you were just amazed at creation around us and the beauty of the fresh snow, and then you began to worship a tree. That would not make sense. Yes, all of creation reveals something of God's character, His power, His goodness to us, and yet we don't worship creation. Creation points us to the author. And so that's my encouragement. As we read the Bible, allow the scripture to point you to Jesus. When you read it, say, how is this directing me to Jesus? Sometimes I read some of the Old Testament passages that I really struggle with, but they encourage me to run to Jesus because I really don't understand some of them. But I know that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. He is, in fact, the living word of God. And so that's what we need to do. Second thing is this. When we access the Bible, don't read it for information. Read it for transformation. I think this is another thing we're guilty of. Uh, we, we love, and it's good to take notes. It's good to memorize the Bible. It's good to have good Bible knowledge. We used to have those, um, this is a very church thing, but Bible trivia games. Anybody do the Bible trivia games? And if you ace that, you know, as a student in youth group, you were elevated to a great status, right? It was bragging rights. You knew the, the stories of the Bible more than anybody else. But that's not the point. And the Bible even warns us that the simple accumulation of knowledge tends to lead to pride. And that's not the point of Scripture either. Scripture is not meant to simply inform our minds. It is that. But more importantly, it's meant to transform our lives by making us more and more into the image of Jesus. There's Jesus again. We're going to talk about him next week. But I'm talking a little bit this week about Jesus because the Bible points us in that direction. So read the Bible not simply for information, but for transformation. And then the third thing I'd say about this, and there's more we could say, but here's the third thing. When you read the Bible, don't read it alone. Read it in community. Now, yes, read it alone. Have a personal quiet time. Every morning, the very first thing I read is the verse of the day that's emailed or, or sent text to me. And I read that as a way to start the day. It's good to have that habit. But don't read it in isolation of others. The Bible is meant to be read in community. It's part of the witness of God's Spirit in community life. We're meant to read it together, wrestle with it together, as we're doing even right now. The New Testament, in a sense, knows nothing of the solitary Christian. And so we read the Bible together in community. Right after the service today, uh, Pastor Samuel and I are actually meeting with a number of new small group leaders as we try and relaunch our whole small group network. And uh, part of the reason for that is so that we can gather again in smaller communities so that we can read the text and more importantly, so that we can live it out and encourage one another to live it out in our daily lives. So read it in community. Okay, one last thing that I'm going to say, because it's on my heart and it's been a challenge uh, to me for a number of years. And I would say this, living here where we do in suburban Calgary, we have a distinct disadvantage when attempting to read the Bible for all it's worth. 
And that might be a surprise to some of us. But we have a distinct disadvantage when attempting to read the Bible for all it's worth. Because the Bible wasn't originally written from our perspective. I'm not talking about it's written in Greek or Hebrew or it's written a long time ago. But it's not written from the perspective of the privileged or the prosperous or the powerful. And whether we like to admit it or not, we are the privileged and the prosperous and the powerful for the most part within the community that we find ourselves in and within the place we find ourselves in. And if we go to the Bible and we wrestle with it from our place of privilege and prosperity and power, we do weird and crazy and sometimes harmful things with the text. The Bible is actually written from the perspective of the slaves in Egypt, from the exiles in Babylon, from the disciples in occupied Judea. And even at times when Israel was doing like really, really good and they were incredibly prosperous and powerful, what did the prophets do? They brought up the voice of the widow and the stranger and the powerless, right? And so there's that perspective that might be missing. And it doesn't mean that we're excluded from the text. It just means that we have to be careful with it. It's amazing as Jesus went through and as the gospel took root uh, and went through uh, the Greek world, we see time and time again, people who are powerful and prosperous and who have privilege end up receiving the gospel and they become generous and hospitable and humble because of it. Think of the, the centurion that Jesus meets up with. Powerful man. He's the occupier. And yet Jesus says of him eventually, I have never seen faith like this in all of Israel. You think of Nicodemus, who was a ruler. He was the teacher in the, in the religious powerful system. And it was Nicodemus that came to embrace Jesus and the new birth. In fact, Nicodemus helped to bury Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. So was Lydia in the New Testament, a wealthy woman. And yet, so there's place for those of us that are in positions of privilege and power to access the gospel. But we have to be careful with it. For instance, just one for instance, and I'll leave this with you. In Luke chapter 16, we read the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Some people know it, right? There's this great rich man, and then there was Lazarus who was at his doorstep with all the sores, and the rich man just kept walking past Lazarus, and then they both died, and they went to their eternal reward, if you know what I mean by that, right? They went to different places. Now, we have to be careful with this story, because if, this, if we read this story simply as a description of hell and an opportunity to condemn people to it, then we've missed the point. Instead, from our position, if we read the story as a reminder that as prosperous people, we have a Lazarus at our doorstep, then we're reading the story from the right context. And this is difficult for us to approach the scripture then with humility. And the scripture then should inspire in us not only humility, but generosity and the hospitality that we have the opportunity to share. And in that way, we participate in the scripture. Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul said this to Timothy. As he was approaching the end of his life, he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. Isn't that what any of us could hope to say in the end? 
out of everything that could be said. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have remained faithful. May God also find us faithful to the witness of scripture as we follow Jesus and as we too fight the good fight of faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have spoken, and that you have spoken in a language that we can understand. Thank you that you have spoken through your created order. Thank you that as we reflect on the created world around us, even in its brokenness, we still see your breath, we still see your hand at work. Thank you that you spoke to us through the prophets of old and the reliability of their testimony we can still read about today. Thank you that you have spoken finally and fully through your son Jesus. And thank you for the words that we hold in our hand that point us to him. Help us to be faithful in these days. Help us to be honest in our approach of your word and may it equip us to do the good work that you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.